The right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And the wrong hire will negatively impact the business and the employees that are around. It could drive down sales and it could cost business a lot of unnecessary expenses. McKenzie & Co. states that hiring a top performer over an average performer yields up to 67% more productivity and profit. I've seen example after example from various companies they have told me stories on how finding the right person at the right time, in some cases asking not what should I do, but asking who should I find because that person could help me determine what to do intelligently. Well, we think a lot about hiring. Companies think a lot about hiring. It is a skill every company needs to learn. It is important to learn how to find the right person. But where do you find that person? A new hire is made every 10 seconds. I know, 10 seconds. That is bonkers. Welcome to the Talent Listing with Daggy podcast. Who is Jim Collins? Jim Collins is a student and a teacher of what makes great companies tick. I know, that is understatement. And he has authored or co-authored eight books that has together sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. That's a lot of book, including Good to Grade, Good to Grade in the Social Sector, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fall, Greet by Choice, and his latest work, Turning the Flywheel. This is a piece from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, on how to hire right people. Please enjoy. How to be rigorous. We've extracted three practical disciplines from the research for being rigorous rather than ruthless. Practical discipline number one. When in doubt, don't hire. Keep looking. One of the immutable laws of management physics is Packard's Law, so-called because we first learned it in a previous research project from David Packard, co-founder of the Hewlett Packard Company. It goes like this. No company can grow revenues consistently faster than its ability to get enough of the right people to implement that growth and still become a great company. If your growth rate in revenues consistently outpaces your growth rate in people, you simply will not, indeed you cannot, build a great company. Those who build great companies understand that the ultimate throttle on growth for any great company is not markets, it's not technology, it's not competition, it's not products. It is one thing above all others, the ability to get and keep enough of the right people. The management team at Circuit City during its transition era instinctively understood Packard's law. 
Driving around Santa Barbara the day after Christmas a number of years ago, I noticed something different about the Circuit City store. Other stores had signs and banners reaching out to customers. Always the best prices, or great after-holiday deals, or best after-Christmas selection, and so forth. Then I looked over at the Circuit City store. It had a banner that read, Always looking for great people. The sign reminded me of our interview with Walter Bruckert, vice president during the good to great years. When asked to name the top five factors that led to the transition from mediocrity to excellence, Bruckert said, and I quote, this is a direct quote, one would be people, two would be people, three would be people, four would be people, and five would be people. A huge part of our transition can be attributed to our discipline in picking the right people. Unquote. Bruckert then recalled the conversation with CEO Alan Wurzel during a growth spurt at Circuit City. Alan, I'm really wearing down trying to find the exact right person to fill this position or that position. At what point do I compromise? Without hesitation, Alan said, you don't compromise. We find another way to get through until we find the right people. One of the key contrasts between Alan Wurzel at Circuit City and Sidney Cooper at Silo, which is the comparison company to Circuit City during the transition era, is that Wurzel spent the bulk of his time in the early years focused on getting the right people on the bus, whereas Cooper spent 80% of his time focusing on the right stores to buy. Wurzel's first goal was to build the best, most professional management team in the industry. Cooper's first goal was simply to grow as fast as possible. Circuit City put tremendous emphasis on getting the right people all up and down the line, from delivery drivers to vice presidents. Silo, in contrast, developed a reputation for not being able to do the basics, like making home deliveries without damaging the products. According to Circuit City's Dan Rexinger, We made the best home delivery drivers in the industry. We told them, you are the last contact the customer has with Circuit City. We're going to supply you with uniforms. We will require that you shave, that you don't have body odor. You're going to be professional people. The change in the way we handled customers and making a delivery was absolutely incredible. We would get thank you notes back on how courteous the drivers were. Five years into Wurzel's tenure, Circuit City and Silo had essentially the same business strategy. The same what? Yet Circuit City took off like a rocket, beating the general stock market 18.5 to 1 in the 15 years after its transition. While Silo, which had the same strategy, keep in mind, same what? Bumped along until it was finally acquired by a foreign company. Same strategy, different people, different results. Practical discipline number two. When you know you need to make a people change, act. The moment you feel the need to tightly manage someone, you've likely made a hiring mistake. The best people don't need to be managed. Let me repeat that. That's one of the key points of this whole book. The best people, the right people on the bus, don't need to be managed, don't need to be disciplined, don't need to be motivated. Guided, taught, led, yes, but not tightly managed. We've all experienced or observed the following scenario. We have a wrong person on the bus, and we know it. 
Yet we wait. We delay. We try alternatives. We give a third and fourth chance. We hope that the situation will improve. We invest time in trying to properly manage the person. We build little systems to compensate for his or her shortcomings, and so forth. But the situation doesn't improve. When we go home, we find our energy diverted by thinking or talking with our spouses about that person. Worse, all the time and energy we spend on that one person siphons energy away from developing and working with all the right people. We continue to stumble along until the person leaves on his own, to our great sense of relief, or we finally act, also to our great sense of relief. Meanwhile, our best people wonder. They're looking at us thinking, what took you so long? Letting the wrong people hang around is unfair to all the right people as they inevitably find themselves compensating for the inadequacies of the wrong people. Worse, it can drive away the best people. Strong performers are intrinsically motivated by performance, and when they see their efforts impeded by carrying extra weight, they eventually become frustrated. Waiting too long before acting is equally unfair to the people who need to get off the bus. For every minute you allow a person to continue holding a seat, when you know that person will not make it in the end, you are stealing in the worst way. You are stealing a portion of that person's life. Time that he or she could spend finding a better place where he could flourish. Indeed, If we're honest with ourselves, the reason we wait too long often has less to do with concern for that person and more to do with our own convenience. He's doing an okay job and it would be a huge hassle to replace him, so we avoid the issue. Or we find the whole process of dealing with the issue to be stressful and distasteful. So, to save ourselves stress and discomfort, we wait and wait, and wait. Meanwhile, all the best people are still wondering, when are they going to do something about this? How long is this going to go on? Using data from Moody's company information reports, we were able to examine the pattern of turnover in the top management levels. We found no difference in the amount of churn turnover within a period of time, between the good to great and comparison companies. But we did find differences in the pattern of churn. The good to great companies showed the following bipolar pattern at the top management level. People either stayed on the bus for a long time or got off the bus in a hurry. In other words, the good to great companies did not churn more. They churned better. The good to great leaders did not pursue an expedient try a lot of people and keep who works model of management. Instead, they adopted the following approach. Let's take the time to make rigorous A-plus selections right up front. If we get it right, we'll do everything we can to try to keep them on board for a long time. If we make a mistake, and all of them made mistakes... Then we will confront that fact so that we can get on with our work 
and they can get on with their lives. I need to underscore a key point here. The good to great leaders would not rush to judgment. Often they invested substantial effort in determining whether they had someone in the wrong seat before concluding that they had the wrong person on the bus entirely. This is a key premise or a key principle in this chapter. If you think you might have a bus problem, ask first, perhaps I have a seat problem. When Coleman Mockler became CEO of Gillette, he didn't go on a rampage, wantonly throwing people out the windows of a moving bus. He spent fully 55% of his time during his first two years in office jiggering around with the management team, changing or moving 38 of the top 50 people. That's pretty amazing you think about it. 38 of the top 50 people he moved around to get it right. Said Mockler, every minute devoted to putting the proper person in the proper slot is worth weeks of time later. Similarly, Alan Wurzel of Circuit City sent us a letter after reading an early draft of this chapter, wherein he commented, and this is Wurzel, Your point about getting the right people on the bus as compared to other companies is dead on. There is one corollary that is also important. I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about who sits where on the bus. I called it putting square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes. Instead of firing honest and able people who are not performing well, it is important to try to move them once or even two or three times to other positions where they might blossom. It might take time to know for certain if someone is simply in the wrong seat or whether he needs to get off the bus altogether. Nonetheless, when the good to great leaders knew they had to make a people change, they would act. But how do you know when you know? Two key questions can help. First, if it were a hiring decision rather than a should this person get off the bus decision, if you were hiring this person all over again from scratch, would you hire? Second, if the person came to tell you that he or she is leaving to pursue an exciting new opportunity, would you feel terribly disappointed or secretly relieved. Practical discipline number three. Put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. In the early 1960s, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris derived the vast majority of their revenues from the domestic arena. R.J. Reynolds' approach to international business was, if somebody out there in the world wants a camel, let them call us. Joe Coleman at Philip Morris had a different view. He identified international markets as the single best opportunity for long-term growth, despite the fact that the company derived less than 1% of its revenues from overseas. Coleman puzzled over the best strategy for developing international operations, and he eventually came up with a brilliant answer. It wasn't a what answer. Following the principle of first who, it was a who answer. He took his number one executive, George Weissman, off the primary domestic business and put him in charge of international. I mean, think about this. There's only 1% of the business at the time. International amounted to almost nothing, a tiny export department 
a struggling investment in Venezuela and another in Australia, and a tiny operation in Canada. That's it. When Joe put George in charge of international, a lot of people wondered what George had done wrong, quipped one of Weissman's colleagues. Said Weissman himself, I didn't know whether I was being thrown sideways, downstairs, or out the window. Here I was running 99% of the business, and the next day I'd be running 1% or less. Yet as Forbes magazine observed 20 years later, Coleman's decision to move Weissman to the smallest part of the business was a stroke of genius. Urbane and sophisticated, Weissman was the perfect person to develop markets like Europe, and he built International into the largest and fastest-growing part of the company. In fact, under Weissman's stewardship, Marlboro became the best-selling cigarette in the world three years before it became number one in the United States. The RJR versus Philip Morris case illustrates a common pattern. The good to great companies made a habit of putting their best people on their best opportunities, not their biggest problems. The comparison companies had a penchant for doing just the opposite, failing to grasp the fact that managing your problems can only make you good, whereas building on your opportunities is the only way to become great. There's an important corollary to this discipline. When you decide to sell off your problems, don't sell off your best people. This is one of those little secrets of change. If you create a place where the best people always have a seat on the bus, they're more likely to support changes in direction. When Kimberly Clark sold the mills, Darwin Smith made it clear. The company might be getting rid of the paper business, but it would keep its best people. Many of our people had come up through the paper business. Then all of a sudden, the crown jewels are being sold off, and they're asking, what's my future, explained Dick Ochter. And Darwin would say, we need all the talented managers we can get. We keep them. Despite the fact that they had little or no consumer experience, Smith moved all the best people from paper to the consumer business. We interviewed Dick Appert, a senior executive who spent the majority of his career in the papermaking division at Kimberly Clark. The same division sold off to create funds for the company's big move into consumer products. He talked with pride and excitement about the transformation of Kimberly Clark and how it had the guts to sell the paper mills and how it had the foresight to exit the paper business and throw the proceeds into the consumer business, and how it had taken on Procter & Gamble and won. I never had any argument with our decision to dissolve the paper division of the company, he said. We did get rid of the paper mills at that time, and I was absolutely in agreement with that. Stop and think about that for a moment. The right people want to be part of building something great. And Dick Appert saw that Kimberly Clark could become great by selling the part of the company where he had spent most of his working life. The Philip Morris and Kimberly Clark cases illustrate a final point about the right people. We noticed a level 5 atmosphere, a level 5 team culture at the top executive level of every good to great company during the key transition years. Not that every executive on the team became a fully evolved level 5 leader to the same degree as Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler, 
but each core member of the team transformed personal ambition into ambition for the company and for the team. This suggests that the team members had level 5 potential, or at least they were capable of operating in a manner consistent with the level 5 leadership style. You might be wondering, what's the difference between a level 5 executive team member and just being a good soldier? The difference is this. A level 5 executive team member does not blindly acquiesce to authority and is a strong leader in her own right. So driven and talented that she builds her arena into one of the very best in the world. Yet, at the same time, each team member must also have the ability to meld that individual strength into doing whatever it takes to make the company great. One of the crucial elements in taking a company from good to great is somewhat paradoxical. You need executives on the one hand who argue and debate, sometimes violently, eyeball to eyeball, like those Wells Fargo executives, in pursuit of the best answers. Yet, on the other hand, who will unify fully behind a decision, regardless of their personal or parochial interests. An article on Philip Morris said of the Coleman era, These guys never agreed on anything, and they would argue about everything. And they would kill each other and evolve everyone, high and low, talented people. But when they had to make a decision, the decision would emerge. This made Philip Morris. No matter how much they argued, said a Philip Morris executive, they were always in search of the best answer. In the end, everybody stood behind the decision. All of the debates were for the common good of the company, not your own interests. Hey guys, this is Dagi again. You can subscribe to this podcast in Spotify or via podcasting app of your choice. If you wish to hear more goodies, I want to know more about it. You can reach me on about.me slash Dagi underscore David. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back with another episode. I hope you'll join me.